right, as we get started this morning, I just want you to think for just a moment about what are some weird things that you maybe would have believed when you were young. So like maybe there are some things that you believe that now you know are not true, but some beliefs that you did have. So for me, I for a very long time was told by my parents, if I did not eat my yellow vegetables, I would turn green. And if I did not eat my green vegetables, I would turn yellow. And I believe that for way too long. Um, and I don't think that's true. Uh, it, it seems to be not the case. So, so weird things maybe you believed as a kid. This week I was reading an article where people were sharing uh, some of the weird things that they believed. First was a, a, from a boy. He said when he was four years old, he believed that God had empowered him to be a rhinoceros. And so he's like, I was still a human, but I thought I'd been endowed with the power of a rhinoceros. And I don't know if you guys know this, the rhinoceros power, most of it is from their head and their strength is from their head. And so he decided that day that he was going to give it a try. It just so happened that his dad was building a brand new rock wall in front of their garden. And so he takes off full speed, head forth, head forward, runs into the fence that his dad was building only to find out later when he woke up in the car on the way to the hospital with incredible amounts of blood that he was not in fact a rhinoceros. Another one uh, told, wrote a story about my mom told me one day that a little bird told me and he said his draw, jaw hit the floor, wondering how his mom had that type of sorcery. Another one talked about how their dad, when they were six years old, told them that there was a button in the upstairs press, that red button, that if they pushed it, the house would explode. Later on, he figured out when he got his own house that houses do not come with a self-destruct button. And more than likely, it was his dad did not want them to mess with the heat and not to be messing with the heating. And so, but he believed for a long time that the house would explode. The final one is a girl talked about she misunderstood the superstition about not opening an umbrella in the house for a long time of her life into her teenage years, into her adult years, she believed that not only was a superstition, but it was illegal. And she would see people doing it and thinking, do I need to call the guards? They're open up umbrella in the house. And, and so weird things, right? We all have weird things, things that we have believed. And in our text today, four different times, we're going to have the idea of belief come to the surface. Four different times we're going to have this idea of faith and things that we believe. And so as we dive into our text this morning, like Jesus has just had like the moment, right? So Peter, James, and John, they've been up on the mountain and it's been awesome. And then Moses and Elijah show up and it's this incredible moment. Jesus is, has this transfiguration and it's awesome. And like, this is just like a moment, a captivating moment. And it's exciting. And the disciples, the three that are there, is like, this was cool. And they walk down the mountain and everything begins to change. So what we're going to find is this has been a pivotal point in Mark's gospel. Mark now is moving away from Jesus being the healing Messiah to the suffering servant. From here on out, Mark is on a mad dash to take Jesus to the cross. And this in this moment, what we see in our text today is this is the second to last healing miracle in Mark's gospel. The rest of the time in Mark's gospel, it's going to be about Jesus predicting his death, preparing his disciples, having some run-in with the religious leaders. And like this is the second to last healing in Mark's gospel. But let's dive in to pick up in verse 14 and 15. So they come down the mountain, everything is going good, and then this is what happens. 
When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them. Some teachers of the religious law were, with, were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and ran out to meet him. So here's what we find interesting. As we look through Mark's gospel, almost always the crowd is overwhelmed with awe after Jesus does a miracle. There's only two instances in Mark's gospel where the crowd is overwhelmed with all before Jesus does a miracle. And this is one of them. And so just seeing Jesus makes the people be excited. Just seeing the presence of Jesus, it, it brings us all in this excitement among the crowd. And as we're reading through that, man, my, just my thought is like, how do you respond when, when Jesus shows up? Like, what's your response when, when Jesus comes around? So one of my favorite things about being a dad is when I get to come home from work or from meetings or stuff like that, and my girls are excited to see me. Like, I don't know, it's just something amazing when I, when I get home. I don't always even make it into the door before my kids are mad rushing me. Dad! And they hug me, and it's awesome, and it's exciting, and it's one of my favorite things about being a dad. But here's the thing. When Postman Pat shows up to our house, even if he has a package from Amazon, that's not the response that he gets. When, when one of our neighbors show up to our house, even if they're friends of ours that we, we love and that love our carols, that's not the response that they get. And so Tiffany and I, when, our, when we show up, we get this excited response from our kids because they, we love them, they know we love, like, we love them, they love us, and it's just this awesome response. And so as we begin to think, this idea is often our reaction will determine the relationship. The reaction that we have is a good representation of the relationship that we have. So just think for your own life. How do you feel when Jesus is brought up in a conversation? How do you, how do you feel about that? Excited? In awe? When somebody mentions something about church, how do you feel? What's the reaction that you have? When someone talks about the, the Bible or talks about Jesus or talks about God or talks about ways that we should live for him, how do you respond? What's the reaction that you have? And it's a good indicator of the type of relationship that you have with him. And so we see in this moment, the crowd is overwhelmed with awe. They're excited to see Jesus. And we find out why in verses 16 through 18. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you so brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast out this evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Here's what's interesting. As you read through this 15 verses, four different times in our text, we are told about the symptoms of this demon, that this demon possession causes the boy. Four different times in this story, the father tells it, the father tells Jesus, that we see the response when the demon, like four different times we see this play out in our text. And it's important for us because you guys have heard us talk about this from time to time, is the Bible, it tends to be void of detail. Especially like this. And so anytime there's specific details in the Bible, we need to pay close attention to them. 
This, the way of writing that describes the, how soft the grass was under your feet. Or, or the way of writing that describes the beautiful foliage and what it looked like. That is a fairly new thing. And so when we read the Bible, when we get details like this, they're there for a reason. And some people have decided that the reason that these details are there is because these are actually the symptoms of epilepsy. This is what a person who has epilepsy, this is what, the, the, this is what they would happen. This is what they would do. And so, so people have decided, like, well, he probably wasn't actually demon-possessed. This little boy was probably just suffering from epilepsy. That's it. And some people have drawn that conclusion. But I think that's a terrible conclusion to make. I think that's a dangerous conclusion to make. It's one that's easy. It's safe. It keeps us from having to deal with the weirdness and the craziness of demon possession in order to, like, we can just kind of explain this away. You know, we're, we're smarter now. We have more medical advance than they did back in the day. They may have thought it was demon possession, but we know better. We know the symptoms of things, and, and that, that might be our tendency. However, I think it's really dangerous for us to go down that path of trying to explain things away because here's the reality. The reason I think these details are in the text is because they're showing some of the things that the demon possession can do. Some of the things that begin to happen when a person is demon-possessed. I think Mark wants to make sure we understand, make sure we see that these are some of the symptoms that his life, the things are rough for this boy. And so we don't need to try to explain this away, even though it's uncomfortable. It's weird like, to talk about the spiritual realm. Why? Because it's things that we can't see. And it's a lot easier for us to be able to say, well, if he had a little medication, it would go away. But here's the reality, and we don't want to miss this. Satan is real. He is powerful and he is active. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether it makes you uncomfortable or not, it's the truth. It's the reality. And as a, just a, a little story from our own lives. So it's, I, I hesitate to share this story because, you know, when we start talking about demon possession or oppression or, or demonic activity, it gets a little weird, right? But we're going to do it anyway. So there is one night every two weeks in my house that is the worst night of the week. Anybody have a guess of what it is? Saturday night before I preach. Every single Saturday night before I preach, my kids will wake up anywhere from 15 to 20 times a night. And if you don't have kids, that's a lot. That's that one night a week, every two weeks, where my thoughts begin to spiral. Like, I'll be laying in bed awake, and I'll think, oh, no, I haven't talked to my mom today. She was probably murdered, and my dad's been kidnapped. I need to get on, find my friends to see where they are. And, like, I just start spiraling. It only happens one night every two weeks. And then, like, I'll have this moment. I'll start thinking, like, oh, what, ha what would happen if, my, if Tiffany died or my kid died? What would, what would we do? What, what decisions would we have to make? Who would help me? take? Like, and these are things that I just begin to think once every two weeks. Then I'll lay in bed and I'm reminded of past sins and past failures and, and regrets that I have. And it happens the night before I preach. And for a while, I was just like, oh, that's coincidental. I don't think it is. I don't think it's that moment. And so when there was nine times between 1230 and two o'clock this morning, when Emma woke up screaming in night terrors, having this moment, finally, I was awake enough to realize here's probably what's happening. And so I just pray out loud, in the name of Jesus, leave my kid alone. And guess what she did? She went to sleep. And I was telling Tiffany, she's like, you probably should have done that earlier. I was like, I wish I would have thought about it earlier. But I'm tired and I'm sleeping. But it's this moment is like, and 
We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. But man, it's real. And we see this play out in our text. And we're going we're gonna to deal with the, the, the disciples' failure in just a second. And this, the, the dad brings them to the disciples and they can't cast out the demon. And so the real question is now, man, what is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to do? Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? So Jesus, he doesn't reply in a most kind way. This idea of you faithless people, this should bring back imagery to the prophets who show up to the people of Israel and be like, you guys are, are terrible people. You faithless generation, turn back to God. This is how Jesus is responding towards these people. They are faithless. They are, he's even questioning, like, how long is this going to go on? How long are you going to be faithless? How long are we going to have to deal with this? But then the end of verse 19 says this. It says, bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to, to me. Here's what I love about Jesus. He's exasperated. He's frustrated. He's heartbroken by the faithlessness of these people. But that doesn't keep him from acting. That doesn't keep him from stepping in to this. There's so much beauty and so much power in those four simple words, bring me the boy. Because in Mark's gospel, he often highlights Jesus as being a rabbi. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but typically or what a rabbi would have done was a rabbi would have been a bit more standoffish. A rabbi didn't typically like to get their hands dirty. The rabbi would stand over here and let me teach you something spiritual while this is all going on. But that's not Jesus, is it? Jesus isn't standoffish. Jesus gets down in the dirt. He gets down in the mess. He says, bring me the boy. Here's the reality about Jesus. Jesus does not avoid company with pain and brokenness. He invites it. You guys see that? Jesus doesn't avoid it. And you know what? I'll be honest. My tendency when I see brokenness, when I see pain, my tendency is want to turn around and run. My tendency is want to avoid it. But not Jesus. He invites it. He says, bring me the boy. He invites, he steps into this. He doesn't run away from it. He invites it. I love that about him. This week I was, I was reading an article entitled, Seven Things You Should Never Say on a First Date. So seven things you should never say on the first date. And some of you just got notepads out. I don't know why. Um, but <laughs> so here, here, here's some of the advice. One of the things you should never say is, Never talk about your parents. Now, like, not necessarily like you want to meet my parents, but like what your, the recommendation is never talk about your family dysfunction. Ne ne don't share any of that on the first date. Second advice, forget about your ex. And so it's the idea, it's like you don't share any of your baggage. You don't share any of the ways that your ex messed you up heading into this relationship. You don't share any of that. The next one is to avoid negativity altogether. So if you're in a bad mood, don't be, as if it's that easy. If you've had a bad day at work, you're not allowed to share that in this first date. If you're having a, a difficult time with some friends and stuff like that, you can't share that because, you know, we got to avoid a negativity altogether. And the final thing is to hide your insecurities. 
So you, you, the idea is to, to remove phrases like sort of or kind of or I guess. And you got to be confident, right? You can't, you can't have any insecurities. So to recap, if you don't want to be left on red, if you want to get a second date, if you want to get a call back, all you have to do is not be a real person with real issues. That's it. All you have to do is act like everything is fine, pretend like everything is okay. And honestly, I'll, I'll be real honest. It's been 17 years for me since I went on a first date. I don't know if that's good advice or not. But here's what I do know. Is I think sometimes that's the type of thing that we take into our relationship with God. We take into the time that we show up at church. We come in here and we look around and we start thinking, oh, if you only knew everything that was going on in my life, you wouldn't be so welcoming to me. If you only knew everything that has gone on or what I was doing over the weekend, you would not welcome me here. Or maybe you say, man, if God only knew, if God only knew everything about me, there's no way that he would love me. And here's the reality, is he does know. And he still loves you. And here's the reality, as a church, the more broken you are, the more messed up you are, the more welcome you are. Because this is a safe place for you. This is a safe place. And Jesus goes and he says, bring me the boy. Your sin, your dysfunction, your issues, your past, your brokenness, it doesn't scare him away. Jesus invites it. He says, bring me the boy. We see, we continue on. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus asked the question, how long has this been happening to the boy's father? He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or to water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. So we've already acknowledged that evil is real. But I want us to acknowledge something else and we see in this text. Notice, catch this, if you're looking at your Bibles, follow along here, catch this. It says, the spirit often throws him into fire or water trying to what? What's that word? Destroy him. Kill him. This is what evil does. This is what sin wants to do. It wants to kill you. It wants to destroy you. Next time you start thinking, oh, this really isn't hurting anyone, really? Yeah, it is. Because that is what sin does. That is what sin wants to do. It wants to destroy us. Like, look at this story. The demon is trying to throw the boy into fire or to water, trying to kill him. It literally makes no sense for a demon to try to kill its host. Because what's going to happen is then a demon has to find another host. If you remember when Jesus cast out the demon and it goes into the pigs, remember they say this statement is like, don't just send us out in the wandering, send us to someone so they can host us. And what did the demons do? They kill the pigs. Like it's not good for a demon to kill its host. They just don't know any other way. They just do it anyway. This is what sin tries to do. It wants to kill us. It wants to destroy us. So it's not something we should be playing around with. It's not something we should be flirting around with. Be like, I'm sure this is probably okay. Like, no sin's chief purpose. Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And if we fast forward to after Jesus heals this boy, he goes and he lays down in the crowd. There's this muttering among the crowd. They say, he's dead. He's dead. And I think there's a lot of similarity to that moment and to our world. Because when we make the decision to follow Jesus, when we walk away from the things of this world and we give our lives fully to Jesus, that's often the response of our world, right? Ah, you're dead now. Oh no, you can't go out and get drunk on the weekends anymore. Your life is over. Or, oh, you're getting married and you're committing to one person. You can't go get, you can't hook up every weekend. Your life is finished. You're dead. Or you have to commit to being sacrificial with your money. You can't just buy whatever you want whenever you want it. Like, your life is over. Like, this is the response of our world, right? But we see in this moment, they say that he's dead. But the reality is that he's alive truly, perhaps for the very first time. Because the other half of John 10.10 says that Jesus' purpose is to give us a rich and abundant life. So when we walk away from our sin, when we walk away from this thing that wants to kill us, we walk into something that keeps us alive, that gives us true and real life. And it doesn't matter how pretty the package may be. It doesn't matter the way that sin might look. On the inside, it is always poison. It always wants to kill you. And so the dad says, He says it often throws him into the fire, into the water, trying to kill him. That word often is important. This is not just a a periodic thing. This is something that the Spirit is contending to do. And what this suggests is there has been multiple times that the father or other family members had literally had to pull this boy out of a cistern or pulled him out of a fire pit to save his life. And they realized, man, we can't live like this anymore. We can't do this anymore. And one of the things Mark talks about Jesus often is he talks about the compassion of Jesus. And I've shared this Greek word with you before. It's my favorite word in the Greek. It's the Greek word splaknong. Let's say that together. Splaknong. You ready? One, two, three. Splaknong. If you didn't say it, you're missing out. It is as fun as you think to say. All right, one more time. One, two, three. Splaknong. It's fun, right? And so this is the idea. It's, it's the compassion that moves into your gut. And you guys know what this is like, right? When you see someone who's deep in need, maybe it just makes you a little sick in your stomach. Like you see someone who's being really mistreated or something that's going wrong. Like it just makes you feel this in your stomach and it forces you to move. And so that's how Mark describes Jesus. And here's this guy. He says to this Jesus, this, the, he, he speaks to the sprachnong of Jesus and he says, have mercy. That's the same root Greek word of compassion. And so what this man is asking Jesus to do, he is saying to him, he is saying, I know you are moved in your gut by compassion. Be moved on behalf of me. So what the father is asking, he is asking the compassionate one to have compassion on him. And his prayer is simply this. Help us. Help us. There is so much desperation in those two words. There's so much deep hurt, and this is a prayer of desperation. And here's the reality, is in our desperation, there is no better place to turn than to the compassion of Jesus. In our desperation, there is no better place to turn to our compa- than to the compassion of Jesus. Jesus, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. Jesus, help. I don't know what I'm going to do without them. Jesus, help. This is too much for me. I can't keep going. Jesus, help. 
I'm so lonely or afraid or sad or empty. Jesus, help. I have no clue what to do next. I don't know the next step that I could take. Jesus, help. How did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? Jesus, help. And here's the good news of the gospel. Is that Jesus is always the best place to turn. Rather, it's, whether it's in desperation or in great happiness, Jesus is the best place to turn. Whether it is in failures or victories, Jesus is the best place to turn. Whether everything is going well or everything is going horrible, Jesus is the best place to turn. Whether you are in need or whether you are in plenty, Jesus is the best place, of place to turn. If you are in victory or defeat, Jesus is the best place to turn. He says, help us. Friends, let me just beg you. Jesus is the one to turn to. Regardless of where you are in your life, he's the best place to turn. And the Father, he says, have mercy on us. Help us if you can. Let's give it to the Father. He's honest, right? He says, help us, have mercy on us if you can. How often is that us? How often is that our prayer life? That our prayers include, if you can. So there's this guy, he, he's this ultra athlete. His name is David Goggins. And I don't know if you've read some of his books. I, I've read all of his books, listened to him some. And he is like a tough guy. Like seriously, crazy tough. He like runs like randomly. He's like, I'm going to go run 300 miles for the next four days. Let's go. And, and like this is just kind of what he does. He holds the world record for the most pull-ups in 24 hours. It's like 4,000 and some pull-ups. Like it's insane, some of the stuff this guy does. But he has this mantra, this statement that he will say when he feels slighted. And it's not even from people when they are slighting him, but when his body is starting to slight him. Maybe he's getting tired when he's running or getting tired when he's doing all these pull-ups. He has this statement that he says to himself. He says, you don't know me, son. And if you've ever run with me when I get tired, you'll probably hear me say this from time to time. Like, you don't know me. Just trying to amp myself up and get myself going. And sometimes I picture Jesus saying that. When we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you could help me have a good day, if you can, I, respect, I, I just picture Jesus being like, you don't know me, son. Or say, Jesus, can you give me a promotion if you can? And Jesus is like, you don't know me, son. You know everything that I've done. I literally have walked on water. I've calmed a storm. I've healed all kinds of people. I have fed people from lots of people with a little bit of bread. You don't know me, son. Oh, and by the way, I helped create the universe. I'm pretty sure I can help you with your promotion. Like, I'm pretty sure I can meet you there. But how often is that our prayer? If you can. And Jesus replies in verse 23. So the Father says, have mercy on us. Help us if you can. And Jesus says, you don't know me, son. That's actually not what he says. Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. Here's the reality. Is our faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith in. Our faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith in. And what Jesus is saying, look at the end of verse 23. He says this again. He says, anything is possible with a person who, for a person who believes. Believes in who? 
in Jesus. Here's the reality. We can place our faith in a job. We can place our faith in a partner. We can place our faith in uh, our kids. We can place our, our faith in our achievements. And eventually, they're all going to let us down. Or we can place our faith in Jesus. And we can trust him and know that he will never let us down. But here's the reality about Jesus, is he won't always do what you want him to do. He won't always do what even you think is best for him to do. But we can trust that he will do what is good. He will do what is right. He will do what is best. And here's the hard thing about following Jesus, is Jesus is more than willing to sacrifice your earthly happiness for your spiritual good. He is more than willing to do that because he's playing the long game. He cares more about your spiritual good than just about our our happiness here on life and in, in this world. Verse 24 says this, the father instantly cried out. It's instant. The father does this. He's not making a pro con list. He's not just trying to come up, okay, do, do I trust you? Do I not? He instantly cries out this statement, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Seems to be a bit of a paradox there, right? Here's the reality. Belief and unbelief, they're not always opposites. We, we tend to think that they are, but they're not always op- opposites. This idea of having faith doesn't mean that we don't have doubts. Because the reality is, in our faith, we will have doubt. It's not the opposite of faith. It's part of our faith. If we never have doubts, how will we ever grow in our faith? If we don't have doubts, how will we ever become more convinced about the reality and the truth about Jesus? There's this guy in the Bible. His name is Thomas, and he gets a terrible nickname known as Doubting Thomas. Like, how how would you guys feel about one moment of your life gives you a nickname, right? Some of you maybe have been there. But Thomas has this one moment of doubt, and now he's called throughout, what, what, 2,000 years now. He's still called Doubting Thomas. We find his story in John chapter 20. And in John 20, what happens is the story starts up this way. It's like one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hand and put my fingers into them and place my hand in the wound of his side. So here's Thomas. All the other disciples have had this cool experience of seeing Jesus. Thomas isn't there. And now he is full of unbelief. He is full of doubt. And I think there's a couple of lessons that we need to learn from Thomas. Because here's the reality. We will all walk through moments of doubt in our life. We're all going to be there. We're all going to do that. It's the way our faith is strengthened. The way our immune system gets stronger is when we deal with viruses and we deal with stuff like that. The way our faith grows stronger is we walk through doubt. So there's some things about Thomas that I think we should learn. The first thing, the first lesson about Thomas, he says it out loud. You guys catch that? He says, I won't believe it unless this happens. The worst possible thing that you can do is walk into this place and pretend like you don't have any issues at all. 
the worst possible thing that you could do is be walking through your doubts and just like, la-di-da-di-da, like just holding it in. Like Thomas isn't sitting there. The disciples are, are talking about, oh yeah, Jesus is alive. And Thomas is like, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is alive. I don't believe it. No, he says it out loud. And there's something to be said for that. To be able to say this out loud is like, I am struggling here. I'm struggling in my doubt. Here's the next thing that we see with Thomas. Look, keep, if you're following along, it's verse 26. It says, eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas was with them. So he says it out loud. Lesson one, he also doubts in community. Lesson number two. As Thomas is with the disciples now, he is in there together. The worst possible thing that we can do is to doubt alone. Even if we say it out loud, to just be saying our doubts out loud, it's the worst possible thing that we can do. So if you are in this moment of doubt, maybe you walked in here today and you have these doubts deep in your heart and you're saying, I don't even know if I believe any of the words of the songs that we're singing. I don't know if you believe that book that you're reading. That's okay. Say it. Let's walk through it together. Let's deal with it. You don't have to tell everyone. You don't have to come up here and grab the mic and be like, hey, here's the, here's the story of my life. But find some people. Find some community. And say it out loud. Because I believe this with everything in me. If this Bible, if this book cannot withstand our questions and our doubts, it's not worth believing. But I think, I believe that it is. I think it can withstand our doubts and our questions and so why do we talk about all the time at church? If you have questions, ask, because this is what we need. We need each other. So friends, can I, just, can I just beg you for a second? I'm not above begging here. Let's never turn this into a place where we act like and we pretend that everything's okay, even if it's not. Let's never turn this into a place where we have to walk in here full of doubts and we can't feel like we can tell some people around us what's actually going on. Because that's nothing more than playing a game. And Jesus calls out the Pharisees often about playing games because here's the reality is when the church gets stuck playing game, it changes from a place that people run to and turns into a place that people run from. If we want this to be a place where people run to, we've got to be real. We've got to be honest. We've got to be authentic. And in this moment, this man, he says, he says, I do believe Help my unbelief. So let's quit playing games. Let's be honest. For some of you, maybe today, that's the decision that you need to go. You need to surround yourself with a few people in community and confess some of the questions and doubts that you might have. Just a, a moment of a transparency for you guys. This week, hasn't been a great sleeping week for me, but this week I spent three hours awake one night, Tuesday night, worried about some things. Our car has, has broke down, and so I spent that time worrying about how we're going to play to fix our car. Then we're getting ready to go to CIY, and I'm thinking, okay, how are we going to get kids to CIY? How are we going to pay for kids to go to CIY? And all these thoughts and these worries started bubbling up within me, and I was in this wrestling moment. I was saying, God, I know that you will provide. I know I can trust you. But then my unbelief is over here. It's like, but what if it doesn't? What are we going to do then? And then I'm just sitting here. It's like, no, God, I can trust you. And then the other part of me is like, but what if he doesn't? What are we going to do? Like, how are we going to pay for this? And there's this wrestling, right, where we go and we wrestle through this belief or this unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think that's a cry if we're honest. A lot of us can identify with. 
That's a, that's a cry that I think if we're honest, a lot of us have from time to time. If it hasn't been, make today the day that it does. Make the time, this moment where that you need to confess that. And what I love about this story, there's a lot of things I love about this story. One of the things I love about this story is Jesus doesn't wait for the guy to have 100% belief before he heals his son. Jesus doesn't say to him, oh, buddy, you're so close. You're at 92, 93%. If we were taking an exam, you'd be an excellent, but you're not quite there yet. So come find me when you hit 100%. Hopefully your son hasn't died by then. If that's the case, like come to me when you're at 100%. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't tell him, oh, sorry, buddy. Only full belief here. Peter, give him our our, our, our itinerary. When you're at full belief, come find us. We'll see what we can do. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus meets the man right where he is. He meets him in his unbelief. He meets them in his moment. And that is the same thing that he is willing to do for you today. Because wherever you are in your belief or your unbelief, if you allow him, he will meet you there. What does that require of us? A little bit of honesty. A whole lot of vulnerability. But he is willing to meet you there, meet you in your unbelief. For Thomas, Thomas says, man, I just need to stick my fingers in the nail holes of your hand. And what does Jesus do for him? Here you go, buddy. This is what you need to believe. Here you go. For this, for this guy who has brought his son to be healed, like at least he's believed that much and now he, he's struggling with unbelief. What does Jesus do for him? He heals his son. And I am willing to bet that after this moment, he didn't struggle with as much unbelief. Because Jesus has healed his son, now I can trust him here. And there's this moment when he makes this confession of, I believe, help my unbelief. It's this act of acknowledging his lack of faith and asking Jesus to grow his faith that Jesus considers great faith. And I know that's wordy, and I'm going to say that again. It's not confusing at all, but think of this. The act of acknowledging his lack of faith and asking Jesus to grow his faith. Jesus considers that to be great faith. And he moves. There's something about the honesty of this man that moves the heart of Jesus. So let's read verse 25. It goes on to say, When Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. There is so much going on in this one verse. We literally could have a whole sermon on this one verse. We're not. Don't worry. We're going to go through this kind of quickly. But one of the first things I want to make sure that we see is he says he rebukes the demon. That's the exact same word Mark uses in Mark chapter 4 when what Jesus does to the storm, to the wind and the waves. Nick talked about this a few weeks ago. We need to be reminded that Jesus has power over the physical and the spiritual world. Nothing is beyond his power. Nothing is beyond his domain. He has power. He has authority over all of it. He has authority over the physical and the spiritual world, including and especially our lives. He has authority over them. Jesus goes on to say, I command you. And this phrase in the Greek, the emphasis is on the word 
I. So what Jesus is telling the demon, hey buddy, you may have been able to resist the disciples calling you out. You can't resist me. You can't resist my authority. You can't get away from it. He says, I command you. Friends, don't dare, don't we dare forget who's in charge of this world. Don't you dare forget who has power over this universe. We can look around at the darkness of our world. We can see things like human trafficking. We can see things like racism and and all these different horrible things in our world and say that's not right. But guess what? There is coming a time, there is someone who is stronger, who is greater, who is going to defeat all the evil in our world. I just want to remind you in this story is that Satan is God's enemy, not his equal. Let that sink deep into your bones. Satan, yes, is God's enemy. He is not his equal. Jesus speaks to this demon. He says, I command you. So friends, when we're overwhelmed by the darkness of our world, let us not forget who's going to win, who has already won. The reality is, is Satan's a poor loser. He's already lost. He's already been defeated. And he's going to win. The last thing in verse 25 is a statement, never enter him again. So Jesus not only has power over the physical world, over the spiritual world, he has power over time itself. Never enter him again. For the rest of time, this command of Jesus is going to stand. This demon is never going to be allowed to enter him again. And what we see here is this is a picture of the kingdom where where right or wrongs are being made rights, where brokenness is being made whole, not temporarily, not for a short period of time, but completely. This is giving us a picture of the kingdom. So he cast out the demon. The boy is healed, and they walk away. And in verses 28 and 29, the story concludes this way. Afterwards, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. And what Jesus seems to suggest here, and the question I think we have to ask is, Did the disciples not even pray? That's the suggestion. They didn't even pray. I mean, we would never, right? We would never make a big decision in our life without first praying about it. We would never go through difficulties in our lives without praying about it first. I mean, we would never tell someone, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then forget to pray for them. We would never do that. We're them, right? We're, like, here's the thing. It's like they go through this moment. They're trying to cast out a demon and they forget to even pray. How do you do that? How do we do that in our lives constantly walking through these things where we forget to pray? And so this idea here is not necessarily like there's a specific prayer that you have to pray to cast out a demon. The idea isn't like, okay, you have to pray, set your timer, pray for 15 minutes, then you can cast out the demon. No, the idea here is you don't have the authority to do this but I do. And you have to tap into my authority. You have to tap into my authority if you have any hope of casting out a demon. We can't just go about doing it our own way. And here's the reality for our lives, I think, is our faith in Jesus and our prayers go hand in hand. Our faith in Jesus and our prayers 
go hand in hand. Look at your prayer list. Look at the things you're praying for. How much does that show that you believe Jesus? How much is it what you pray about? How much does it show that you trust him? Are your prayers littered with if you can? What are, what are you praying about? Like, are you just asking for yourself? Are you asking for the kingdom to come? Like, what are we, what are we praying about? And there's this book, if you've heard me talk uh, at all recently, I've referenced this book called uh, Praying, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And it's by a guy called Tyler Stanton. And he has this incredible quote. He says this, he says, If we really took Jesus' invitation seriously, if we believed in the sort of prayer that Jesus talked about, the modern church would have a hard time getting its people to do anything but pray. In actuality, we need to be motivated to pray. So our belief in Jesus and our willingness and our ability and our prayer life, it's connected. So as you look at your prayer life, it would be a good indicator of the type of belief that you have in Jesus. Do you trust what he says? Do you believe the scriptures that say you have not because you ask not? Because our prayers and our belief in Jesus, our relationship with him, man, they go hand in hand. So what do we do? We're in these moments of our lives where we're struggling with unbelief. What do we do? How do we overcome our unbelief? It's real simple. For, here's, here's, the, here's my suggestion. How do you overcome unbelief? Trust. I'm like, wait, that doesn't seem right. Let me, let, me, let me explain this. How do we overcome our unbelief? Is trust. Friends, if we can sit here today and trust God with our salvation, surely we can trust him with every other area of our lives. If we trust him with our very eternity, why do we struggle to trust him with our money? If we can trust him to save us, why do we have a hard time trusting him in our relationships? If we can trust him to make us new, to bring shalom to the world, why don't we trust him? Why are we struggling in these areas? So here's what I want to challenge you to this week. Starting this week for the next six months, so now and through the new year, I want to encourage you guys to trust him. Maybe it is with your finances. Maybe you've never lived a life of generosity the way that the scriptures call. Maybe you know some ways that you need to be generous to God and to the church, and you just don't want to do that because how, are, how am I going to, how are my bills going to get paid? And so let me just encourage you for the next six months, trust him there. Maybe it is relationships. And maybe you know, like, these relationships I'm in, they're not right. They're not what God wants for me, but I'm so lonely and I I want to be in a relationship. And so we're going to say for the next six months, God, I'm going to trust you here. I'm going to trust you. Maybe it's forgiving that person. Maybe that person has deeply wronged you and it hurts. For the next six months, can I encourage you to forgive that person? To take Jesus seriously? and to believe him and trust him and to seek out reconciliation with that person. For the next six months, can I encourage you to practice the spiritual disciplines? Read your Bible. Pray. Be in community. Fast. Sabbath. Do these things. And maybe you're wondering, I don't know what taking a day off every week is really going to do for me, but I'm going to trust him here. So for this next six months, can I just encourage you to step out in faith, to step out and trust him. What do you have to lose? Truly, 
Psalm 34, verse 8 says this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what I want to call you to today is taste and see. Step out in trust. Step out in faith and see what he does with that unbelief that we have in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you.